All right. So joining us now, we have Josh Frank, who is the founder of The Tie. Josh, how are you doing today? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad at all. <laughs> Love to hear it. So for uh, many of our listeners have heard of The Tie before and, and how, uh, you know, we have our partnership together with Altcoin Alert and everything. But for those that haven't heard of The Tie, can you give us a high level overview of, of what The Tie is and what you guys are doing? Yeah, so at its core, we solve one major problem for hedge funds, market makers, OTC desks, asset managers, banks, really anyone in the institutional space, which is if you go to a large institution and you ask them, how are you staying on top of crypto from an information perspective, what they'll do is they'll show you, you know, their browser, and they have 40 or 50 different tabs open in their window. And what we really do for our institutional clients is consolidate the entire market into a single screen. So we bring together news, on-chain data, sentiment data, market data, derivatives data, research, NFT, governance, developer data, you name it. Uh, and we exclusively service uh, the world's most sophisticated institutional investors. So our average client, you know, could be a $1 trillion asset manager, a tier one bank, a $40 billion hedge fund, uh, as well as some of the larger uh, crypto native institutions. But really, you can think of us as their, you know, kind of platform of choice for looking at the market to identify opportunities uh, and better manage risk within the space. So, so going back to you or, you know, coming to you personally, how did you get involved in, in the Web3 space and the crypto industry in general and, and why the focus here rather than anywhere else? Yeah, I mean, I, I was, uh, you know, the transparent answer is I was working at a very boring job. I was working in post-trade settlement technology um, and was just really bored. And so I started day trading crypto uh, and I was actually building quantitative models on equities to try to figure out, you know, why equities are moving. And looking at crypto, I was like, why is this market moving? I mean, this was 2016, 17. This is when John McAfee was pushing out a tweet and the price of an asset was going up by 200%. Um, so it's a very different time. And, you know, this is when Kodak decided to roll out a blockchain miner and Long Island Bice tea rebranded as Long Island blockchain and all that kind of nonsense, maybe a little bit even before that. Uh, and I just couldn't figure out why the asset class was moving. Uh, and so that was really the impetus for starting the company. It was to to try to figure out what was going on in the market and to try to make sense of it. Because I personally wanted to trade crypto and I had no good data or information. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So uh, it was kind of a combination of boredom and, you know, uh, a curiosity to figure out what's driving, you know, prices of, of this asset class. And while the output of that has changed over time, you know, I've been in business for over five years now, you know, we've grown from the company was just me to we're now 80 plus people. Um, you know, the kind of thesis or, or the idea behind really making sense of this chaotic market has always been there. Sure. So given that you and your team have so much data to, to parse through and everything, but, but you also are able to draw a ton of actionable insights from, from that data. And so with that in mind, what are the trends that you're seeing right now? You know, what, what are we looking at in today's market? What's what's hot and, and where is uh, where's the focus for institutional investors, especially? Yeah, look, I think the thing about crypto is it, it, it what's hot depends on the minute, you know, or the hour. Right. It's a very, very fast market. It's, it's a very narrative driven market. Right. You know, we we. You know, you can't you can't just focus on one thing for too long, because if you do, you kind of get left behind. Right. You know. We've had, you know, now the big thing is RWAs, but RWAs are security tokens that's been around for six or seven years in crypto. It's the same thing. It's just a narrative that's kind of coming back, right? DeFi was a really big narrative before NFTs. Metaverse was the hottest thing when Facebook rebranded as Meta was a giant thing. Now AI tokens all of a sudden are a giant thing because of OpenAI. 
uh, seemingly every day, you know, there's kind of a new, a new trend that goes in the market. I think my question is, which of those trends actually become sustainable uh, and become long-term, you know, and, and have real-world usage? I mean, I think the two biggest trends right now that I'm seeing in the market, at least in terms of conversation, from an institutional perspective, it's definitely RWAs, the idea of taking real-world assets, which I think is a really dumb word, uh, and bringing them on chain, like tokenizing securities is all it is, right? Taking treasuries and putting them on chain or, or equities. Uh, and we, we're starting to see that, right? We saw obviously Polygon's partnership with Hamilton Lane, Avalanche's partnership with KKR. Uh, we're starting to see a lot more of that, a lot more talks around tokenization of assets. You know, this is a conversation we've been having for six or seven years in the crypto space. It seems to me that we're we're finally starting to get a little bit of traction. We'll see how sustainable that traction is. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that seems to be where, at least on the asset management side, we're starting, and maybe on the bank side, we're starting to kind of see a movement. Um yeah, I mean, in terms of institutional adoption trends broadly, um, you know, there is no slow into, in, you know, there's not a real significant slowdown of institutional adoption of crypto. Um, I think there's been a lot of talk and thought that post FTX's collapse, post Alameda, post uh, Three Arrows, post, you know, uh, Celsius, post Luna, post all the stupidity, uh, you know, just keep, keep going, BlockFi, I'm sure we can just Voyager, we can just keep going and naming these different things, it's taking a second to come to me, right? That institutions would be scared off from the market. And I think the good thing and the good sign is we haven't seen a huge slowdown uh, from an institutional adoption perspective. People are still really interested in this asset class just because they're interested in the fact that like it is relatively immature, which means that there's a lot of opportunities to make money, right? Like, you know, the equity market kind of has perfect information or not perfect information, but you know, People can access, you know, pretty much the same information on equities, their PE ratios, their earnings, their revenue, their quarterly calls, all those different metrics, whereas in crypto information is a bit more sparse, and there's a lot more opportunity to, to make money. So, you know, I guess trends I'm seeing is continued institutional adoption. Basically, what I like to say is if the institutions were already coming into the space, they haven't stopped. But if they were kind of like on the sideline thinking about it, they have. So, I think we're going to continue to see institutions coming in. I think tokenization is is a trend that I'm starting to see. But again, as I mentioned earlier, pay attention because next week it might not be a trend anymore. But I guess that's kind of you know my high level. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's a great point. It, it is an extremely fast moving industry, and you know for better or worse sometimes. But um, you mentioned all of the downside catalysts that we've had in the last year or so, and and I wonder you know, if that hasn't scared away institutional investors, speaking to your clients, what are the primary concerns for, for those parties? Well, it's it's certainly, it, it certainly scared them. It doesn't mean it stopped them. So those are two different things. So, you know, we've talked to a lot of large funds and like one of the biggest concerns is, you know, hearing this from a fund that's ready to go in crypto, very large fund, 10 to 50 billion AUM, like significant, significant size fund. And, you know, the feedback that we're getting is like, we don't know how to manage risk. How do we get notified when all of these major negative events happen so that we can be ready to be prepared for them? How does our mid-back office team know about all of these negative things? And so I think there's a few different things. I think the first one is we need to be able to respond to a major problem in this asset class, right? We're not scared of there being a major problem as long as we can get notified fast enough and deal with it. But if we can't get a notification of the problem, that's a huge risk. The second is, who is my counterparty? Who am I trading with? Who am I lending and borrowing with? 
right? And that becomes a huge question as well. Like with Genesis blowing up and BlockFi blowing up, you know, there's been a huge problem with Lend Voyager and a huge problem with lending in this space in OTC. And so a huge part that I'm hearing from more of the traditional institutional landscape is who can I trust to do business with? Like, where can I onboard? Which exchanges can I use? I, I trusted FTX. I invest in FTX. I mean, BlackRock, you know, all these different, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I think BlackRock invests in FTX and like Apollo and all these large, I mean, I don't know what the whole list is. You can Google FTX investors. There's hundreds of them, right? All these large traditional institutions, Sequoia, invest in FTX, right? The question is, who can I trust, right? Where can I put my money? And one of the, the pieces of feedback I've heard, which is quite interesting, is I don't want to do business with somebody whose primary business is crypto, uh, which is kind of leading to this, I think, you know, this adoption of more TradFi market participants uh, and using them. So for example, BNY Mellon is by far the large, the world's largest custodian. They've rolled out crypto custody. That's a name you can trust. BNY Mellon custody is $20 trillion. I'm serious, $20 trillion of the world's assets, right? And so if you think about who are you going to trust with your money? Is it a crypto custodian, which has $20 million in their balance sheet and probably needs to raise a Series C or a Series D? Or is it BNY Mellon, who in the case of them getting hacked by a billion dollars, be like, all right, fine, we have to backfill the billion dollars off our personal balance sheet, right? Um, so I think we're going to see like, you know, an adoption of, of, of folks like Cowan that are moving into uh, moving into offer more prime services for crypto, um, State Street and others um, that, you know, have businesses that aren't primarily crypto uh, are, are the counterparties that I think more of these traditional institutions are more comfortable doing business with. And I think rightfully so. I think as an industry in crypto, we haven't proven that we're ready to, to deal with these, these institutions that take on their money. So the first part is I need to know about risk. The second thing is I need to know who I'm dealing with. And the third thing is I need to know what the hell is going on from a regulatory point of view, right? And I think everything that Gary Gensler has been doing is not helping, um, right? And kind of this, this lack of regulatory clarity where businesses don't even know what they can do, firms that want to trade don't even know what they can trade, where they can trade, what exchanges or venues they can trade over, right? And then the fourth thing is just building better tools. Like one of the biggest examples uh, that still kind of is a problem is the prime brokerage space in crypto. Like ideally as an institution, right? If I want to buy a hundred million dollars worth of Aptos or or a hundred million dollars worth of Avalanche or Polygon or whatever, any asset doesn't matter. I'm not suggesting a particular asset, right? Right now you kind of need to physically have assets deployed on an exchange where you can buy those assets, right? So for example, imagine that Polygon wasn't available on exchange A, um, but exchange A is where you had all your money, right? So theoretically, you want to be able to get your money from exchange B onto exchange A to buy that asset, right? And so the idea of prime brokerage and being able to basically have a single part, a single point where, you know, basically doesn't matter where your capital is actually deployed, right? You can basically buy any asset that you need. You can hold your assets off of exchange. So you're not worried about, you know, the FTX scenario where, they were actually siphoning your money out and trading with it, right? All of these different, you know, these, you know, we can go into prime brokers a lot more, right? But all of these different ideas of, you know, you know, knowing about risks, knowing who your counterparties are, knowing what's going on from a regulatory point of view, being able to actually trade, you know, and manage your capital efficiently, right? All of those things are, are, are barriers, I think, to, to adoption, you know, equally so. And it's not stopping everybody, but it's certainly like putting up, you know, in some cases, six or 12 month or 18 month blockers in the, in the schedules of some of these firms, you know, coming into crypto. 
Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Eufy Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition, and it has AI self-learning chips, so the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery, and it lasts around four months, but don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice, and also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded. Recordings, they're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one. With the three-in-one, you don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Yeah, you know, that's, that's an incredible insight and there's a lot to unpack there. And you, you sort of answered a handful of the questions that I had lined up for you already. And so I, I do want to switch gears a little bit towards the user side. And you, you were talking about the barriers to adoption for institutional investors. And I was wondering, is, you know, is, are there any obvious barriers to adoption for retail investors that, that you've noticed? Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a few of them. Um, adoption, the word adoption is also a broad word, because what do you mean by adoption? Do you mean trading the asset or do you mean actually interacting with the asset on chain, right? And so, you know, I think one big barrier to adoption is regulation, right? As a New York state resident, like I am, I can't interact with almost any 
venue. I can interact with Coinbase and Gemini and a couple others, but I'm pretty limited. The same thing goes with my company, actually. We want to be able to interact with crypto a little bit just to receive payment and different things like that, even in stables, right? And then I go to onboard with an exchange and they're like, well, actually, you're a New York-based entity, so we can't do business with you, right? And so I think regulation is certainly a barrier. I think the SEC shutting down staking for retail investors on Kraken is asinine. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Um and, and that's a huge barrier. And I think the other barrier to adoption, which isn't kind of the trading and speculative part of it, but it's more the actual usage of it, is just the fact that we haven't built anything on chain that that's, that's that great yet. Like, I think stable coins are great, and they're a fantastic use case for foreign remittances. I think stable coins are a great use case, like if you're in a developing country, which has very high annual inflation rate, right, you want to have a stable coin uh, because you want basically a US dollar equivalent. I think that's awesome. And I think actually the US government should be really excited about the fact that if we can get crypto denominated in U.S. dollars, that's really great for U.S. dollar dominance. So I don't know why the U.S. government isn't really like a fat. The U.S. U.S. government should love stablecoins because it's basically creating even more U.S. dollar dominance. But you know, there obviously have been a, a barrier in some in some ways as well. Um, but I think that the, the just the, the fact of the matter is there's nothing that exciting on chain. Like the games that are on chain. They're no, they're not better than the games that are off chain. I'm gonna play Call of Duty and all these other games. I'm not gonna play, you know, these random, you know, little mobile games on chain, right? So I think it's, you know, obviously GameFi is just an example of it, right? But the question is, what do I actually need in my life, right? What do I need to operate or what am I excited about using? And the fact of the matter is, there's just not that many exciting things on chain yet, right? Like play to earn isn't really that exciting because at some point people realize it's just incredibly inflationary and the value of the assets is zero, right? So the question is like, what becomes that thing? I think DeFi has started to become that thing a little bit, right? Where there's this idea of being unbanked and stuff like that, but like DeFi yields are worse than treasuries now, right? And if DeFi yields are worse than treasuries, why would you want to interact with DeFi, right? And so I think we still need that compelling use case narrative. And I think we need to have an easier experience for the, the user to onboard. Like, I think ideally, the user doesn't even know that they're interacting on chain when they're interacting on chain, right? Like you don't really know that you're using AW. You don't know that I'm on X Spotify's website. I don't know, maybe Spotify uses AWS. Let's say they do. I don't need to know that I'm interacting with AWS on the back end. It's Spotify, right? So I think we just need to make it, you know, like on-chain experiences, you don't need, you shouldn't need to know that you're operating on-chain for, for, for crypto to get mass adoption. Yeah, and and that's a I think that's a sentiment that's shared by a lot of founders and, and developers at the moment is is that the user interface really is maybe the biggest drag on adoption. But I want to touch on a point that you brought up in the way that we don't have a a real like killer app, so to say, as as the term they use in the in in the Web two space, I suppose. And so I you know I I wonder what what in your opinion would be that killer app that we might see in in two to three maybe five years if i knew i would be investing in it unfortunately i don't know um i don't know i don't know if i have a good answer i think stable coins are the killer app you know does that mean that value should accrue to crypto i'm not sure but i think stable coins are the killer app interesting yeah and and i would think that DeFi, like you said DeFi is sort of moving into that realm of being more functional or or more useful in the real world but but like you said real world asset seems like such a silly word um but that being said you know is, is that something that that you see really catching steam especially given your interaction with with institutional clients i think it does it just depends on what regulators say right so can 
you interact with these protocols if you can. Like, I think you need regulatory clarity for DeFi to really take off. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, can you interact in a pool? Like, what if somebody who deposited LP tokens in Uniswap was the North Korean government or the Iranian government who are sanctioned and you're interacting with uh, sanctioned you know, entities by accident, right? So like, I think there's a lot of questions that we need to kind of address um, before we start to see that, that, that real adoption and the idea of like, how can you do it? And, you know, permission word is a little weird and institutions don't just want to interact with themselves. It's a problem. Like if you're a hedge fund, you don't want to be trading against other hedge funds. You want to be trading against retail. Um, so, you know, the, the, the question is like, yeah, how do we get there from a regulatory compliance point of view? Like, I think an example is maybe you just have a KYC DeFi experience. Like maybe you have a, a world in which you can basically get your wallet KYC and then a company gives you like, hey, this wallet address has a stamp of approval and then they can interact with anything on chain and we know that they're KYC, right? And so just like things like that are, I think, really needed. And I know that's against the ethos of crypto. Right. And it's the against the ethos of decentralization and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, if we want adoption, we're going to have to operate within the confines of regulation or we're just or or we're just going to get absolutely demolished by regulators like we are now. Right. I mean, we're feeling it. Right. If you don't work with regulators there, I mean, the SEC, I mean, Hester Pierce wrote a great, great uh, piece called Cracking Down. Uh, I don't know if you get you saw that um, uh, a couple of days ago. And let me let me actually pull up this quote from from Hester Pierce on how on how regulators are operating right now. I thought this was fantastic. So uh, this is what she's saying. So Hester Pierce is a commissioner on the SEC, and this is what she's saying about how the SEC is approaching things. Um, uh, okay. Most concerning, though, is that our solution to a registration violation is to shut down entirely a program that has served people well. The program will no longer be available in the United States, and Kraken is, is enjoined from ever offering a staking service in the United States, registered or not. A paternalistic and lazy regulator settles on a solution like this one in the settlement. Do not initiate a public process to, to develop a workable registration process that provides valuable information to investors. Just shut it down. I mean, Hester is literally shitting on the SEC and she's an SEC commissioner, right? And so like, look, in a world where Gary Gensler can just be like, just gonna shut it down and, you know, screw you, right? Like we need to figure out how we can work with regulators uh, and build relationships because all these Gary memes on Twitter, as much as I wanna share them and shit on Gary, it's not helping. I think that just fuels him more to, to, to hate the industry. Yeah, man, what what a what an interesting inflection point in the industry as a whole, and uh, I I think you're right. That's that really is one of the biggest problems that we're facing today. So really appreciate your perspective on on all this, and especially your insights to to the world of institutional capital. And um, you know, appreciate your time joining us today. So before we go, is is there anything you want to leave our listeners with uh, in terms of where they can find out more information about the tie or or follow you or any of your uh, teammates on Twitter? Yeah, you could follow us. Uh, you follow the tie on Twitter. It's at the tie IO. Um, we share a lot of great stuff. You can sign up for our newsletter. It's totally uh, free. You can read some research that we provide. I also have a podcast called the Fundamental Value Podcast, which is great. It has no advertisers, nothing. It's just free. There's no agenda. Don't even advertise my own business on it. But I bring on generally uh, the top institutional investors in crypto. So my last few episodes, I brought on the head of growth investing at... Uh, 
at uh, Dragonfly, which is one of the biggest uh, venture funds in crypto. I just brought on Mo, who's the founder of Aptos. It's called Aptos, not Aptos, which I learned by having him on the podcast. I recommend that. You know, we dive a little bit deep. It might be a little bit complicated for the average listener, but the reason I host it is because I get to ask questions to people, uh, and I really, I really recommend listening to it. So that's 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 the only thing I'm going to pump. But not pumping for you to buy anything. Just you know, get get some free content from us. Love it. Appreciate that. And uh, thanks again for joining us. And and we hope to uh, bring you back on the next one as always. All right. Thanks for having me on. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.